And please be seated. And uh, let's, let's pray before we uh, open up our text. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for who you are and who you have become for us. Thank you for your presence with us today. We thank you for being near to us and not far off. We thank you for loving and redeeming us and not condemning us and casting us away. We thank you that you never leave us, never forsake us. Thank you that you even uh, account for our weakness, account for our foolishness, our, our inabilities, our sin, because you draw near to us again and again and again. You prop us up, you hold us up, you speak to us tenderly and compassionately, never, never condemning, never, um, never wagging your finger at us and saying in any kind of way anything except that you are ours and that we are yours. And so we thank you for your great love for us. And now as we come to your word and as we consider together the glory of the incarnation of Christ, the birth of the Son of God, we pray that you would give us minds and hearts that are settled, that are quiet, that are attentive. Help us to hear things again that we've heard before. Help us to hear things perhaps that we've never heard before truly. And we pray that you'd be at work by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we're going to look this morning at very familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, many of you children can't hear Luke 2 read without maybe thinking of the Charlie Brown Christmas uh, special. Luke 2 is so very familiar. And one of the challenges, I think, for uh, ministers this time of year, and we've, Hal and I have talked about this, is you're expecting, you're keyed to expect to hear certain things from us at this time of year. And there's nothing wrong with that. But one of the dangers is that you can hear things without really listening. You can come expecting to hear the Christmas message and maybe not expecting to be challenged by it. Maybe not expecting to, to glory in it, to, to praise and adore it with wonder in your heart at what God has done. You can get so accustomed to it that you don't really hear it anymore because that's just what we're like. That's what our hearts are like. And yet the scriptures tell us here and what we're going to read, this is truly good news of great joy for all people. So please, uh, let, let me just ask you not to let that happen in your own hearts and minds this morning. But to listen carefully as we read God's Word, as this very familiar passage of Scripture from Luke's Gospel is read out loud to us, that we would consider the greatness of what God has done in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world for sinners. So let's read this Word of the Lord together. We believe that this is uh, the Word of God, that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it's inerrant, that it's infallible, that it's our only authority. So let's give our attention to it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem 
because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. This is the Word of God. Very simple, very simple sermon this morning. Because I just want us to notice how Luke and his account of the birth of Christ draws our attention, we could look at a lot of things in this text, draws our attention to two key themes, two key themes that Christmas is about. The first is the providence of God. Notice how Luke begins uh, this narrative of the birth of Christ with historical details. He mentions Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor at this time. And he mentions a man named Quirinius, who was the governor of Syria. Luke begins this account with historical details because he wants to emphasize for us how God was at work and how God continues to be at work in every one of the details of this world and of your life in order to bring his plan to pass. And so Luke uh, points to Caesar Augustus, this human ruler who, for the better administration of his government, decides to call for a census. If you're a a Roman emperor at the time and you want to be sure you're fairly taxing, or or, uh, maybe not fairly, but taxing everyone in your empire, then you want to call for a census. You want to make sure everybody's accounted for. And in order to do that, everyone was to return to their hometown where they were to be counted And so Caesar makes this decree for this census. And so we read in the text that Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. He has to make this journey south to the city of Bethlehem. He has to climb these mountains that go 
uh, that, that come into his path on the way to Bethlehem because he's from the, the family of David. His hometown, his family town is Bethlehem, so he has to go to be counted. Now, this may not seem so remarkable, but if you know a little bit about your Old Testament, or at least if you were listening earlier when Eric read from Micah chapter 5, you know that God, more than 700 years before, through the prophet Micah, had prophesied that the Savior of God's people would come from Bethlehem. We read it from Micah. You, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me as one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So you've got on the one hand Caesar Augustus for political, ordinary political reasons issues this decree, but what's really happening God's at work in the details. God's moving history exactly how he wants it in order to bring about the birth of Christ in exactly the way that he had promised it would happen. The providence of God, Luke puts right in front of us in this passage. So Matthew and Luke both show us that this prophecy of Micah was fulfilled by the providence of God. And you just think about all that had to happen. You know, what a great coincidence this was. That was sarcasm. Caesar Augustus had to be born. Augustus had to be born in the first place. He had, uh, in due time, to become the emperor. He just happened to decide to issue this decree at exactly the moment in history that he decided to issue it. And at the same time, Joseph, who, by the way, was a descendant of David and from Bethlehem, would then have to come to Bethlehem, was also betrothed to this virgin in whose womb, by the Holy Spirit, had been conceived a son, Jesus the Savior. All of this is happening at the same time in the providence of God so that when Caesar just happens to issue this decree, no, God is working out his plan. God is executing it exactly as he has promised that he would through his word. And Of course, none of it was luck or coincidence. It was the work of God's providence, his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing almost everything that happens. No. All his creatures and all their actions. Now, you forget that, don't you? You you look at your life, you look at the news, you hear of things in this world that happen. You begin to think, either in little ways or big ways, that things are spinning out of control. Things are falling apart. It's easy, isn't it, to look at life that way, to look at your own life that way, to look at the church that way, to look at the world that way. And what happens is very subtly you begin to forget the providence of God. Luke is reminding you in this Christmas account of the birth of Christ of the providence of God. Now, what are are some of the... How do I know that you forget that? Well, I know, first of all, because I forget it. But where do you think that these epidemics in our culture and in the church of hopelessness, of anxiety, of fear, of despair, where does this come from? Whether you realize it or not, it comes from disbelief in God's providence. Disbelief 
that God has not only ordered everything from before the foundations of the world, but that he will never fail to bring it about. And that everything he's doing is orchestrated toward the accomplishing of his plan. And that's not just in some out there generic way. That is personal to you. And it's personal to us as the church. One of my favorite quotes is from uh, J. Gresham Machen, who said, Straight through the apparently tangled course of human history runs the accomplishment of God's, God's eternal plan. And you see what's going on there? There's apparently a mess. In other words, it looks, that's what it looks like to you and me. But straight through the apparently tangled course of human history, you can't make sense of it. You can't even make sense of your own life. But straight through the apparently tangled course of all of human history, not just your life, not just our time, but this time and the time before and the time that will come after we're dead, all of it, all through every bit of it runs the perfect accomplishment of God's eternal plan. That's what God's doing right now. And the Christmas story here in Luke 2 is emphasizing the providence of God. And by the way, he even uses people who don't care a lick about him or you to accomplish his plan. He used the pagan Roman emperor. Caesar Augustus is not thinking about the, the providence of God, the birth of the Messiah. He's thinking about his own empire. God, it doesn't matter. God uses all sorts of people, all sorts of circumstances, everything, in order to bring about his plan for his people. Now, this is one of the great struggles for us in our lives. We look at life and we tend to think, if we put it this way, we tend, to, we, we tend to look at life as a bunch of scattered puzzle pieces. How in the world is this going to come together? I don't know. And it's not saying that God's going to tell you how it's all going to come together, but he's putting it together. And he's putting it together in a way that is much better than you could if you had control. And he's putting it together in a way that's much, much, infinitely much greater than you could ever begin to imagine. And that's what we see here in Luke 2. Christmas is an announcement of the providence of God, a reminder that there is more going on than what you are currently experiencing. And so it's a call to put your hope in God, to trust Him, to doubt yourself, not Him, and to believe that in His love for you in Jesus Christ, He is working everything out for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So the providence of God... First of all, secondly, this text certainly, and this is, I told you there were two points. We'll apply this one in a few ways, but this is it. This text is about the humiliation of Jesus Christ. The humiliation, the, the unspeakable humility and lowering of the Son of God for our salvation. Now, If we're going to appreciate the depth of Christ's humiliation, we always first have to understand the greatness of who he is and the greatness of what he's come to do as the Savior. And you begin to see this surfacing here in this account in Luke 2. Because Luke gives us the the account here of the angel's announcement in verse 11 that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, the Bible doesn't leave Jesus as a safe, harmless, benign baby in a manger. 
The baby who was born in Bethlehem is the Savior who died on the cross for our sins, who was raised from the dead in that body on the third day. The, the baby who was born in Bethlehem is the Christ who's with us this morning by His Spirit. The child who was born in Bethlehem is the one who is coming again in glory to judge the world and to bring salvation to us as His people. And all of these things are packaged up in the way that the angels make this announcement, these three titles they give him in verse 11. Savior, Christ, and Lord, they all reveal the greatness of this child who's born in Bethlehem. And again, if we're going to understand the depth of his humiliation, we need to be able to appreciate the greatness of who he is. Because it's in that contrast, who he is, what he does, that we see the marvel of of his incarnation. He's come as Savior to be our sacrifice, to cleanse us of our sin and stand us pure before the throne of God, to remove our guilt. He's come, this child who, by all apparent observation at this point in history, is just a baby. He has come to be our propitiation, the one who grows up and because of his sinless perfection can bear in his own body the wrath of God Almighty in our place. He's come to be our redemption, to grow in wisdom and in favor with God and man so that he can offer himself up as the Lamb of God whose blood is shed as the ransom, the price to buy you out of your slavery from sin and to set you free. He's the one who's come, the angels say, peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. He's the one who's come to remove what gets in between every person and God, which is our sin, our guilt, our corruption. And he comes and he removes it in order to make peace so that there's reconciliation, there's renewed fellowship. So here is the Savior the Scriptures are showing us. And what's so striking, well, not only Savior, but he can do this because he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's God's anointed one. And he's the Lord himself. He's the Savior. He's the Christ. He's the Lord. But what's so striking about this in Luke Luke 2 is how does he appear? The lowliness and humility in which this Savior comes. You see that in a number of ways. There's no way he should have come to Bethlehem. We read in Micah. Bethlehem was was seen as this little nowhere place. Nothing... Nothing would happen there. No one would go there. No one important. And yet God goes there. Christ is born in Bethlehem, little insignificant town. He's born in obscurity. He's he's laid in a feeding trough for animals. The Son of God, the one who has lived eternally in in the glories of heaven, who is God himself, now lays in this obscure, filthy trough in Bethlehem. The one who deserved royal robes, whose coming should have been announced with I don't, every kind of fanfare you could imagine, is wrapped in strips of cloth. And who was it who hears first of his birth? Shepherds. Shepherds were not highly esteemed. They were despised. They were dirty. They were looked upon very poorly. They were disregarded culturally. No one cared. My understanding is that even shepherds could not even testify in any kind of a judicial hearing, court hearing. It didn't matter what they thought. They were despised. 
And yet, who does God come to? Who does God announce the birth of Christ to first? The shepherds. These shepherds out in the field at night watching their flocks. But it's, see, it's exactly the point, isn't it? Why does God appear and announce the birth of Christ to people like this? Well, it's exactly the point because Jesus came not for those who the world thinks are important, not for those who think they're important. He comes for the weak. He comes for the cast-offs. He comes for the, down, the downtrodden, the lowly, the poor. He comes for those who know they need him. And this really, I think, turns our, or ought to, turn our priorities upside down. Christmas reminds us, among other things, that God's priorities, God's values, the things he says are important are not the same as what we say is important. We might pick a big city for this to happen. God picks Bethlehem. We might pick a a palace or at least a nice house. God picks, I don't know, a stable, a cave, a manger. God comes in weakness. He identifies with the lowly and the poor and the broken. Why does he do that? To show that the power is not yours, that the glory is not yours or mine, but that it's his. So that his greatness shines more brightly in the midst of that darkness. Here's the light of the world in some little out-of-the-way hole somewhere in, in Bethlehem. And yet now that light is spreading, isn't it? So God comes into the world in lowliness. And I think that means you can stop trying to get rid of your lowliness. You can stop trying to hide your weakness. You can stop trying to compensate for your inability and realize that God's put it there so that you'd see your need for Him and cling to Him and not to yourself. But it's not just the lowly circumstances of Christ's birth that are amazing, as amazing as those are. It's not just the circumstances that are amazing. It's that he was born at all. It's that God would take on flesh at all. You know, human nature, since the fall of Adam, human nature is not a nice thing. It is a glorious, wonderful thing because it's in the image of God. But human nature is stained by sin. It's affected by the fall. It gets sick. It suffers. It's it's diseased, it's disgraced by sin. And Jesus, God, takes on that diseased human nature, not in a way that leaves him with sin, but to bear that for us. That he was born at all is the wonder. And I, and I want, as we, just these final reflections here this morning, to try to impress this on us as deeply as I can Because although God was under no obligation to do anything for us, do we understand? God was under no obligation to come into this world. God made this world. We ruined this world. God could have rejected and destroyed this world. God was under no obligation at all to do anything for this world or for us. He freely, willingly, lovingly chose to do so and to do so in a way that implicated him, that involved him in the mess, that involved him in humiliation. Uh, I've been reading the last few weeks a great old book called The uh, Body of Divinity by Thomas Watson. He says this, that Christ should clothe himself with our flesh, O infinite humility. 
Christ taking our flesh was one of the lowest steps of his humiliation. He humbled himself more in lying in the virgin's womb than in hanging upon the cross. It was not so much for man to die, but for God to become man was the wonder of humility. For Christ to be made flesh was more humility than for angels to be made worms. Jesus took on our flesh. He took on our disgrace. He took our weakness upon himself. He took upon himself hunger and sorrow and fears and infirmities and weaknesses and exhaustion. And worst of all, he had our sins imputed to him. He knew no sin, but he was made sin for us. He had no sin in him, but he had our sins laid on him. And this is why he came. This is why he was born. The marvel of the incarnation. And I think it's easy for us to complain about suffering, isn't it? It's easy for us to complain about our lives, to grumble, to feel sorry for ourselves, to talk about the problem of evil if we're really into philosophy and discussions like that. But let's not ever talk about suffering, however small or great. Let's not ever talk about it as if God had kept himself apart from it. God has not kept himself at a safe distance from suffering, not from your suffering, not from any suffering in the world, because God has entered into it. And God has taken upon himself the humiliation of our mess. He's subjected himself to it. God who made the world enters the world to fix what we did to the world and to do so at his own expense at the cost of the humiliation and death of his own son. Absolutely staggering. And I'd like for us to apply this in three ways, just briefly. First, so what is the humiliation of Christ which which we see in Christmas? What, What does that mean for us? What does it say to us? It says first... The humiliation of Christ is a mirror that shows you the greatness of the love of God. The depth of Christ's humiliation is the measure of God's love for sinners. And I'm stressing this because one of the, most, one of the oldest and most dangerous temptations that we face as believers in Jesus Christ is to begin not believing that God the Father loves you. You don't always feel that love, do you? Don't you go through times as believers where you you doubt God's love for you? You doubt his presence with you? You you doubt his good purposes toward you? But that's exactly when you need to stop making conclusions on the basis of what you feel. And look here again at the incarnation. Look again at the cross. Look again at the resurrection. And at every point... You're seeing this mirror of God's love for you, a sinner, that he would not spare his son but give him up to humiliation? Why why do you think God would do that? What do you think would move God to do that? God who has perfect love for his son, what do you think would cause him to, to strike him? Is it not incredible love that can't be measured that would that would cause him to do that? And to know that that love is set on you, that that son was given for you, and then to read into that anything other than love to the Father? John Owen, the great old Puritan, said, there's no greater sin than you can commit as a Christian than to believe that your Father does not love you. 
So Thomas Watson again says, It was love in God the Father to send Christ, and love in Christ that He came to be incarnate. Love was the motive. Christ is God-man because He is a lover of man. Christ came out of pity and indulgence to us, not our deserts, but our misery made Christ take flesh. Christ's taking flesh was a plot of free grace and a pure design of love. God Himself, though almighty, was overcome with love. Christ incarnate is nothing but love covered with flesh. Christmas shows us the love of the Father in the incarnation of the Son. Secondly, Christmas, the incarnation, the humiliation of Christ calls you and me to humble service, right? Jesus Christ stripped himself of his robes of glory, clothed himself in the rags of our flesh, the rags of our humanity. And if I really believe this, and if you really believe this, and if we really are seeing this, we're going to realize we've got a long way to go. Because I still love myself way too much. I still love my comfort far more in ways that are not consistent with the self-humbling of Christ. And I think you do too. But the humiliation of Christ calls us to humble service. His lowliness and humiliation calls us to what Paul says in Philippians 2. Not thinking of ourselves, but thinking of others. Not putting ourselves first but putting others first. And just for the sake of time, I would want you, I want to challenge us to think about what does that mean for your marriage? What does that mean for your relationship with your parents or your children? What does that mean for our life together as a church? What does that mean for us here in Athens? What does it mean for you in school or in work? To look at the humble service of Christ, the lowliness, the humiliation of the Son of God, and to remember that The servant is not greater than the master. Finally, the humiliation of Christ calls us to our knees in in praise. You see how that's what the angels and the shepherds have in common in this passage? All they can do is break out in praise. All they can do is adore in amazement at what God has done. You see what the angels say in verse 13 and 14? Suddenly, there was with the angel... A multitude, thousands upon thousands of the heavenly host. Can you imagine what that sounded like? One day you'll know. Glory to God in the highest. And the shepherds, as they leave Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they returned. They didn't return the same, did they? Glorying glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. Here's what I want to say. It would be so dishonoring to God if we would hear these things again, say we believe them and walk out as if it's just, yeah, yeah, God God came down. You see what I'm saying? Do do you recognize in your own heart how easy it would be for you to do that? To hear again this news of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then to walk out as if it's just old news. But the humiliation of Christ calls us to our knees in adoring wonder because 
the eternal God was born. The God who thunders in the heavens cried in a manger. The virgin conceived and gave birth to the Lord who made her. The child in the womb was greater than the mother, and the mother younger than the child that she bore. Praising God, glorifying Him is exactly the right response. And we need to be, not just now, not just for four weeks, we need to be a community of praise that is so struck with awe at this love that has given Jesus Christ to save us from our sin, to bring us into his new creation. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we would simply echo the words of the angels and the shepherds and say glory to God in the highest. Lord, all of this is your glory. All of this is your work. And it's simply ours to enter into it by faith and rejoice in the one who is our Savior, Christ, the Lord. We thank you that you have given to us so great a Savior. We thank you that you have chosen to announce your glory and to attach your glory to our salvation. And so we pray that you would give us hearts to believe and to rejoice and to follow you today and in the rest of our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.